I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers. Also a podcast. You can find all of my interviews on the podcast and on-demand listening whenever you like. From the outside, leading a study abroad program has always looked kind of cool to me, like a perk of a career in academics. But when English lit professor Jason Fitker is pressured into taking 11 students to England in Julie Schumacher's new novel, he is miserable and he has no idea what's coming. The English Experience is Schumacher's latest novel set on the campus of Payne University, and it's the completion of a trilogy. Julie Schumacher is a Regents Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Minnesota, and she joins me in the studio. Welcome back. You know what? I think we talked about the first in this trilogy. We did. But how did I miss the second? COVID? What? When did it come it out? Was, uh, that was 2019. Ah, okay. So I don't have COVID as an excuse. No. Somehow but, I missed uh, you. You know, hey, we can't be everywhere at all times. <laughs> did there need to be three novels or is it just because, yeah, things come in threes? and Things do come in threes, but it never occurred to me in my life that I would write a trilogy. The first book was kind of an experiment with form, mm. written in the shape of letters of reference. The second one, I realized I had won the Thurber for the first one. And then I realized I was in love with my character. You know, typically when I'm finished a book, I'm tired of my characters. I want to walk away. I'm sick of them. I need to do something new. <laughs> uh-huh. Gone. Never want to see you again. <laughs> uh-huh. But I loved this guy. I remember when you and I talked you were less <laughs> fond of him. Yeah, still, still uh, not fond of him. I know him. you're we'll still not about fond that. of him. We'll have yeah. to talk about that. We will. Because he's, he's not a person that objectively one would be fond of. He's a pain in the tail. Right. You know, he is obnoxious. He's politically incorrect sometimes. <laughs> he is, um, you know, he's a very crusty, irascible guy. He does a little objectification of women. And yes, I know he's got mm-hmm. he's got another side. That mm-hmm. that was probably my beef with him mm-hmm. from the beginning. Yeah, he's old school. Again, yeah. he's not pleasant. He's not correct. But he is, um, you know, it's it's more interesting to me as a writer to deal with somebody who's got faults. That makes he's so got much sense. Many flaws. Yeah. If you're going to pick a character who's going to drive a plot, you don't want somebody who's full of virtue. You know, there's nowhere to go. If you're going to write about Mother <laughs> Teresa, there's nowhere to go. Um, so I I felt like working with his flaws as a human being was more fun and more interesting. And also I wanted his humane qualities, his humanity to come to bleed through the flaws. Totally works. And yeah. that's that's why he's more fun for me and more interesting, even though he is... <laughs> a real jerk <laughs> at times. <laughs> okay, that makes all the sense in the world, and we can we can talk a little bit more about his flaws. But as it happens, I have a friend who's a professor who is leading a study abroad program <laughs> right now in Europe, and she was so – it was derailed by COVID a couple of years yeah. ago. They had to cut it short and come home. Yeah. And she was really excited. And you've made me wonder if she is the exception rather than – the rule. Do most professors who do this, and you've been in academics for a long time, you would know this. Do they dread this? 
Oh, I've done it. Uh, oh, you've done it too. Yes, not to okay. England. I have been uh, teaching a travel writing class. Wow. For undergraduates, um, which I devised because hey, I get to go to Spain. <laughs> I take them to Madrid, Toledo, Segovia. Uh, I did a bunch of travel abroad as an undergrad. Yeah. I was a Spanish major as an undergrad. And I was off to Mexico, South America at the drop of a hat. And, you know, those courses can change your life when you're 18, 19 years old. And I thought, I want my students to do that. You know, I don't care if they're English majors. I don't care if they're studying creative writing. We've got to go somewhere. We've got to go to some other place outside the U.S. And um, so that's what started it. But it's it's very different to be on the teaching Tell side of that equation. Well, because you are hoping to allow these students a sort of enriched experience. You know, that's mm-hmm. what you really want. But it's it's very different for you in that you're the one um, trying to offer them that, and at the same time, you're the one that they knock they knock on your door at two a.m. and say, "I don't feel well." You know, can you? <laughs> Do you have any aspirin? Do you have calamine lotion? You know, <laughs> can you help me with this? Oh gosh. You know, I've got a splinter. I've got something. Um, I tried very hard to divorce the fictional book. I moved everything to England. I haven't taught abroad in England, but I moved it there because I didn't want to be imitating my real students, my experience with them. But there were a couple of things I found irresistible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, one student at TSA in Minneapolis, as we were on the way to Madrid, um, had a taser in her bag and was caught by the TSA folks who were interested in... And she said, I I thought it might be dangerous over there. She was thinking, yeah, when I'm by myself. Yeah. I can somewhat understand Mm -hmm. the logic of that. Until yeah, you get I mean, on the she's plane. She's 18 right. years old. She's not been abroad. <laughs> right. um, but I just thought, you know, we'd gone over packing lists. We'd gone over <laughs> right. policies about alcohol and drugs, forbidden, et cetera, et cetera. It never occurred to me to say, don't bring your taser with you. It just hadn't dawned on me. And right. um, that I did slip that very briefly into the novel. But So these students are remarkably needy. Yes. And one of the things that I wondered... Julie, again, I think you have you have your fingers on the pulse of this in a way that I never would. I wondered if some of this is what you read about generational, somewhat delaying adulthood. You know, I did a study abroad, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. basically they dropped us off and said, I mean, we had excursions, but we were left to our own devices for days on end, yeah. which was good. It was mm-hmm. really a maturing experience. These students in your novel seem surprisingly needy for kids who were that age in that place. They do. (laughs) They do. And I needed to exaggerate that. You know, again, this is fiction. A little. not real life. But yeah, I too, when I did study abroad in 1970, whatever it was, I just... Once I got on a bus from Ohio to Mexico City uh, by myself, <laughs> wow. uh, that was not a great trip. And <laughs> I yeah, imagine. I landed in South America and just you know found your host figured family. It out. Yeah, figured right. it out. But um, yeah, there's more, much more supervision I think now of of students for many many reasons we could go into. Well, okay, tell me tell me your perspective on this though. I mean, is this the way? Because students today have grown up in more sheltered kind of 
environments and parenting. And so that extends mm-hmm. to something like this, the expectation of that. Yeah. And there's also, you know, there's been COVID. There's been 9-11. You know, I mean, when you and I went abroad as undergraduates, you just walked into an airport, That's right? That's right. You didn't yeah. have security. Um, the world has changed and that's maybe part of the reason the students have changed. But sure, our culture has changed, too. We've got cell phones. Students are in touch with their parents 24-7. You know, you and I probably wrote postcards once a week. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> to our parents. But that, I mean, nobody could imagine that now, right? Right, right. Our students are in touch all the time. Okay, so how do you think that then influences the kind of experience? I mean, mm-hmm. part of the... I think part of the really maturing and wonderful part of my study abroad was f- really feeling like I had to figure it Independence. out. Independence. Yeah. A- and mm-hmm. some of that scariness and risk of if you make a mistake, you're going to have to solve it. You're going to figure yourself. it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like the students just in general today and maybe in this experience abroad mm-hmm. do not have that kind of weight on them. What do you think? Yeah, I think that is true. I think that's definitely true. And again, I would I would chalk part of it up to technology. Mm. They are always able to reach out for help. You and I couldn't do that. We had to figure it out. How did it how did you feel that your experience abroad changed you? What do you remember about that? You know, part of it was being young and naive and seeing another culture, seeing the way other people interacted. They weren't like my family. They weren't um, like my friends. I had to think of my own life as something, you know, very particular. It was not a paradigm. It was not (laughs) something crucial. And that's what I wanted these kids in the book to experience. I mean, they do to some extent – as a writer, though, what I was going after was, you know, the ability that Fitger is struggling with, which is how does he be himself but see himself in their experiences? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the thing you get from teaching abroad. You imagine, you remember your younger self, who you were when you were your student's age. You can do that in teaching in any case. Mm-hmm. But taking students out of their, you know, habitual environment and taking them abroad, you imagine what it was for you when you did that. You see yourself as, you know, a 60-year-old person, as a 30-year-old person. You see all these versions of yourself through the years. And you remember who you were at that age when you were impressionable, which maybe you are not. (laughs) Fitger is not so much anymore. You uh, you steered rather quickly away from what your what your own experience taught you. Abroad at that age. was. I'm trying yeah. to remember, Carrie. Well, it was so long. I ago. loved what you said though at first, Julie, about you realize that your own family experience was not the paradigm. I mean that mm-hmm. people lived in. That was the big revelation for me uh-huh. too. America isn't the center of the universe. No. My life, yeah. such as it was, was small mm-hmm. and not a model for anything. So, exactly. So tell me a little bit more about that for you. Well, I think the first time I went abroad, I was 18 years old. I went backpacking with my older sister through Europe. And our parents 
instructions to us were we were to go into a phone booth, <laughs> some sort of company. What was the company? You went into a um, an office somewhere in Europe, hmm. and you went into a phone booth, and you were connected to home. There was a given time we were to call them once really? a week wow. on a Sunday. And they were home. Of course, nobody had an answering machine. They had to either be home or not. And we were to send them postcards twice a week. And that was our communication with them. She must have been, you know, she was my supervisor. She must have been 20 years old at the time. And off we went. And it was um, it was so eye-opening just to be in a place that was so radically different. Mm-hmm. When I took my first group of students to Spain... I asked them, um, find a buddy, walk around the block, everybody's tired, we've got jet lag, and come back and give me your first impressions. Great. And um, I also asked them to get a snack, you know, what were their thoughts on finding something to eat on their own in another place. Most of them came back and said they'd gone to Starbucks or McDonald's. (laughs) They were terrified. Rats. Um, (laughs) And among their first impressions, one of them said to me, everybody here is speaking Spanish. And I thought, well, we're in Spain. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was that yeah. sort of feeling. I'm not at home. Right. It's not um, something I'm used to. I can't talk to people here. Most of them spoke no Spanish whatsoever. And to be somewhere where you couldn't go into a store and just say, hi, I want X. Yeah. I loved watching them go through that. And she was a little embarrassed when I, I stared at her and <laughs> said, we are in we are." In Madrid. <laughs> she said, I know. I mean, I knew that, but I didn't know it. That to me was, was the feeling. I knew it objectively, but I didn't know it. Right. I hadn't felt it before. I remember that, that moment too, and you probably do too, when you realize that you're going you're gonna to be an isolated venturer in this mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. You're going to have to try really hard. I mean, I'd taken years of French. Mm-hmm. I could not. <laughs> I know. Horrible. It, it was you awful. I could not string a sentence together when I got to <laughs> or France. Or you can string a sentence together, but you can't understand <laughs> the reply. <laughs> That's right. They couldn't really yeah. understand me. I mean, that realization that um, I was going to live in some isolation until I figured this out. Yeah. It was scary, yeah. but really empowering, yes, right? totally. Because then that's when you start to problem solve and say, it's all down to me. Nobody's going to fix this for exactly. me. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So um, Jason Fitger, as we should say, the the professor who has appeared in all three of the novels, and he's the one who's leading under duress the study abroad um, he does everything he can to try to get out of it. What What is he most worried about in this project? He's set in his ways. He doesn't like travel. His ex-wife, Janet, points out to him that he is not exactly a nurturing person. <laughs> She's so helpful. That, in fact, he, quote, doesn't like students, <laughs> You know that he is the least likely person. And, in fact, when the provost drafts him to lead this trip, somebody else falls ill and on very short notice, he is sent to be the, the faculty leader. He sees on her desk a whole list of other names that have been crossed out. He is the last person <laughs> she would want to do this. He's ill-suited. And again, it's more interesting to deal with a character who is out of his or her element and or full of flaws. And he's both. He's both. I wanted to send him to a place he disliked. 
He says early on that his his memories of England involved blood pudding and some poorly timed <laughs> yeah. sex uh, with his <laughs> then wife. And it's it's not a place he wants to go. It's not an activity he wants to engage in. But off he goes. He's he's somewhat blackmailed into it by the fact that the provost tells him, do you want me ever to support your department again? <laughs> yeah. You're going. The You're threat going. was pretty obvious, wasn't yeah. it? I think that's funny, too, that he... He really recognizes the flaws in himself that makes him not good for this, and yep. yet he's insulted that he wasn't thought of <laughs> exactly. almost immediately. Boy, does that sum up this guy or what? It does. Yeah, it does. Right? It does sum him up. And, you know, again, I, I like sending him because you and I were talking about what it's like to be an undergraduate abroad and to be out of your element, but he's yeah. out of his element in a different way. He's yeah. doing something he doesn't want to do. He's not comfortable nurturing these people. And as we were mentioning earlier, students being a little bit needier today than they might have been a few decades ago, he's forced to become a nurturer. You yeah. know, He's a very unlikely nurturer. <laughs> he's an unlikely traveler. But there he is. He's the one available. He's the one who is sent to go. And the students are knocking on his door in the middle of the night. They, you know, they have their issues that go with being a person of that age. They're overindulging. They're engaged in heartbreak. Um, they're upset about being away, homesickness, all of those things. Yeah. I mean, you, you so subtly introduced this idea that he cannot ignore their vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And and then he has to kind of confront his own. Yeah. And you did that in such a way that it felt um, – I didn't see – I was going to say I didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I think we always think he has this side but that he never is pushed to have to confront it or mm -hmm. open it to let people see it. But um, I, I get I, – I wanted to ask you about he's pompous and self-satisfied mm -hmm. and enraging and endearing. <laughs> yes. He's definitely endearing too. I'm glad you included he that He is word. endearing. <laughs> but he's also enraging. Yes. And I, I guess this kind of takes us back to where we started, which is conceiving a character that you're going to – that there are still going to be things to reveal about him over the course of three books. Yeah. But also in this last book when he's in a place that he's uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about making sure there are still things to see about him, perhaps to you as the writer, but mm -hmm. also to us as the readers. Yeah, in the three books, I did situate him differently. In the first one, he's, he's a letter writer. And um, it was a relief to write that book and not to have to get him in and out of his car. I don't describe many things. He's simply writing letters. In the second one, he's mixing with faculty. It's a faculty sort of novel um, in-house in Willard Hall. And in this one, I send him abroad. Each time in each book, I would get to the end and think, well, I'm done. I'm going to write something else. I'm done with this set of characters, etc. And he always drew me back. And when I was beginning to write this last one, The English Experience, I told myself, I actually consulted a few writer pals about killing him off. Uh, one <laughs> <laughs> Abroad? Well, oh, sure. Wow. People die anywhere, Carrie, yeah, uh, especially right. fictional characters. You can kill them off at will. Um, and I, I 
puzzled a lot. Do I kill him off? And that way I can't write a fourth. You know, close that door. Put him to bed. Um, people will have to read the book to find out whether I decided to kill him <laughs> or not. But um, I, I just uh, – I now am done with him. I've put him to bed. I feel like I have him in these three different scenarios. I've tested him mm-hmm. three times in three different ways, this last one being very student-centered and outside the U.S. Okay. So, Julia, are you saying I – there were new things to reveal – to you mm-hmm. and to the writer about him, but I had to put him in mm-hmm. the, a different yeah, spot, okay. a new scenario, uh, both you know geographically, physically, right, as well as emotionally, dealing with the needy students. I think uh, as some of his students are homesick, there's one who is um, very homesick for her cat. She has never left her cat behind <laughs> before. Mrs. Gray. <laughs> yes, poor Mrs. Gray, the kitten. Um, but he is also homesick for his relationship for his ex-wife. He's never stopped pining for Janet, even though they've been divorced for years. So uh, that that was a different scenario for him, too, to be longing for home, in a way, in a place, again, that he doesn't enjoy. He doesn't like England. See, that's what makes him, and you know this, that's part of what makes him endearing, is that he he pines for this woman who you think holds nothing but contempt, although there's a little bit of fondness mm-hmm. mixed in, but she's pretty contemptuous of him. Yeah. She's prickly. It's hard to tell, I think, sometimes whether she would be a nicer, more pleasant person to people other than Jason Fitker that he would particularly bring out in her <laughs> this yeah. very prickly side because he's so aggravated. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Um, but, he really um, knows how to push her buttons. and He says at one point that they got into an argument when they were married that led to her nailing one of his shirts to the closet door. <laughs> I mean, right. she's – Love that. She's, uh, you know, got her own fiery side, I think. <laughs> right. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to uh, my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. You can hear it as a podcast as well. And I'm in conversation with uh, Julie Schumacher. We're talking about the culmination of – her trilogy of novels that take place on the campus of Payne University. Uh, geography, somewhere in the Midwest? Somewhere Julie, in the Midwest, is that right? yes. Okay. Not the University of Minnesota. Nope, nope. I it's, tried to get you to smaller. confess that before. No, 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 you, it's a smaller school than the yes. U. And Jason Fitger, Professor Jason Fitger, is the through line and some of the other characters through the trilogy. But this time, Julie has sent him overseas and he's running a study abroad program with some very amusing 11 students, although is it 12 with the, the guy that goes <laughs> off or is it 11 no, with the 11. guy? No, it's 11. Okay. Explain this, what I'm talking about. Well, I started with a larger number because logically a faculty member taking a group abroad would probably take 18 to 20 students. Um, but when I started out with that large a number, I thought, I can't manage this many characters. The reader won't be <laughs> really? able to remember who's who. It's, it's, <laughs> it's too big a number. So I whittled them down. Uh, I eliminated a couple. I have one character who, as you said, disappears off the trip <laughs> on a regular basis. I admired basis. him a lot. He's just yeah. sort of off on his own. He goes to Budapest, to Paris, and just <laughs> takes off. Um, so you re- don't really see him. You know right. he exists, but you don't see Little him. Little missives come in exactly. from where he is. Photos, yeah. postcards. He's traveling the way all of us wish we could, <laughs> wish we could. at that age, right? I turned two of them into identical twins who essentially function as a single 
person, again, in order to just reduce and make uh, a more manageable number of characters for myself. Right. I remember the last time, uh, back to Payne University, I remember the last, the first time we talked about the first book, I hassled you about whether this was really a way for you to get a lot of the stuff that drove you crazy (laughs) about academia off your chest. And I think you were more, you were diplomatic, and I wasn't sure I believed all of your diplomacy. (laughs) Now, let it be told, Julie. Let it be told. Come on, tell me. Oh, uh, let's see. I mean, these are satires. I am obviously satirizing the industry in which I work, higher education. But the things that I love about Jason Fitger are the things that, uh, because he champions the things that I care about, right? He champions the liberal arts. He's frustrated about, um, you know, you you read about schools that have done away with their language programs, with their art programs, music, etc. That sort of thing drives him crazy, as it does me. I, I want to advocate for the arts in higher ed, for literature, for everybody to take and study writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want those things to disappear. And I see Fitker as a sort of Quixote figure. He's he's a wacko, but he's holding up the banner <laughs> for uh-huh. those things that he cares about. He's he's upset about student debt. You know, he worries about this thing that he feels is crucially important. You know, where is higher education going? I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't have any sort of answer for that. But I I worry about it, and I'm frustrated about it. And I gave those frustrations over to him. Yeah, I was curious about how long this discussion, which just seems so circular and never resolved about um, liberal arts education has been going on. So I reread a New York Times article from 2003, Mm. 20 years ago, that was headlined, Justifying a Liberal Arts Education in Difficult Times. And the author was former Dartmouth president James Friedman. Mm. And he was arguing, as you do and as I agree, that a liberal arts education prepares you for life. But listen to what he said. Liberal education opens our eyes to what life is principally about. It's about understanding yourself and having some resources to deal with everything life throws at you. It's about developing a moral compass and some understanding of how society works, how democracies work. When do you think... What is there to argue about that? And yet there's a lot of argument against that. And when do you think that started to gain traction? I mean, has this been going on for as long as you've been in academics? Yes, but I think it's getting more severe. And I think the other side of the coin is how do these students get jobs? That's what, Uh you know, tuition is rising and rising and rising, right? I mean, everything is more expensive than it used to be. But higher education is very expensive, And you look at people who can't afford to send their children to Harvard if they were to get in and didn't get aid. What are they going to do? Are they going to make the argument that, well, this is about becoming a good democratic citizen and you'll be in debt for the rest of your life because of it? That's a hard bargain. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I want everybody to be able to have that education that you just (laughs) quoted, but who can afford it? Yeah, but I mean, as you know, as I know, Harvard is not the No, of course not. I mean, there's so what what's also happened here is I guess what I think of as the celebritification, I don't know, that's not even a mm-hmm. word, of 
the college experience, mm-hmm. right? So if you're if the name of the college that you went to is not instantly recognizable, mm-hmm. uh, you failed yeah. somehow. I love the college experience. I have nobody around here would ever recognize the name of the mm-hmm. school I went to. Yeah. And look how well you're doing. Yes. Oh, yes. You're right. <laughs> you're no. a credit to your institution, But you, you see what I mean, Julie, yes. too, is yes. um, how do you think that figures in, too? Just uh, it's got to be a name that everybody recognizes or it's not worth much. I think that's true. And it's a good point. Um, I think also some schools years ago were under pressure to, you know, every liberal arts school needed to have a rock climbing wall and a sauna and et cetera. And to um, attract students, to attract students. Allegedly, that's what they want. And now they've got these very expensive uh, buildings and grounds to maintain. You know, Ah. the the maintenance of these schools is hugely expensive. Um, I have to say my, one of my daughters went to Cornell College. I'll make a little um, plug for that in uh, Iowa, not Cornell University, yes. but college. And she went down there and said, boy, the f- athletic facilities are terrible here. She was not interested in athletics. And I thought, good, because we, <laughs> we don't want to pay for them. We, you know, right. why not? It was it was um, a real reasonable school. Right. Yeah. And she, good school. Did she have a wonderful yes. experience? It was a great school. Yeah, it's it terrific. Great. So um, I should ask you then what your, you've heard what what this Dartmouth, former Dartmouth president has to mm-hmm. say about that. What What is your most compelling argument about in the face of a lot of skepticism about why a liberal arts education is still necessary? Well, I would second his argument and make it more specific because as a person who's in an English department, <laughs> teaching writing, teaching creative writing, but I've also taught a good share of freshman comp, you know, writing well, I don't care about chat GPT, Everybody needs to write well. Everybody needs to know not just how to construct a grammatically correct sentence, but how to have some rhetorical skills in their back yeah. pocket. You know, you must have studied some writing at, at your uh, undergrad institution. Yeah. I mean, and that's disappearing. Yeah. Um, I don't quite believe in the writing across the curriculum um, theory. I'd like to see people take their writing classes in the Department of English where we concentrate enormously on how sentences are built, how books are put together. So the writing across the curriculum argument is, well, you're going to have to do this in all of your classes, whether yeah. it's biology Let's teach writing or, in a biology class, et cetera. Or a theology. I would okay. you know, think it's uh, a rough duty for a biology professor to have to teach cell division as well as constructing sentences. Yeah. I think they should be teaching cell division. How well prepared are the and maybe maybe because you're you're in the English department and people are coming in because apparently they love to read and they want to pursue something in that. But I am curious about how well prepared the students, the high school students are in these writing skills and how about in some critical thinking with reading when you get them there's i mean the university is so large uh the university of minnesota that um there's a real span some students are the best you'd find anywhere in the country you know terrific terrific students very well prepared and others much less so Mm -hmm. writing skills i think are not as good as they were a couple of decades ago because I'm going to sound like a broken record here. Everyone I know, everyone who knows me knows I'm, you know, a technophobe. Um, It's all about texting your friends. You don't write letters anymore. I've Uh been going through drawers since I moved and cleaning out papers. And the amount, the number of letters 
I sent and that people sent to me before email is voluminous, drawers and drawers and you full kept of all letters. That? I, oh, yeah. I'm oh, a wow. pack rat. I keep huh. things. Um, and that's gone. You know, the care that people took to scratch out one sentence they didn't like and, and write another after it, rather than texting something that looks like, you know, it's full of typos, full of <laughs> double meanings that were unintended. <laughs> um, right. We don't think and write in sentences the way that we used to. It's funny. Um, I'm much more forgiving about some blurp in a text mm-hmm. Than I am. I still have that kind of moment of shock if I get an email where there's some misuse of grammar. Yeah. Or, but I don't think, I think. You and I may if, be dinosaurs. I know, I was going to say. Or if I send something and it's, I've overlooked something, how horribly embarrassing. Yes. But um, I don't, I think that's going away. Yeah. People don't care about that anymore. I know. <laughs> I know. We'll be standing and Jason our ground Ficker would be very sad he would. about that. He I would. Know. He would be crabby and unpleasant about it. Don't align me sad. with Jason Ficker. <laughs> there you go, Carrie. <laughs> there you go. See? <laughs> He's yours. Uh, Julie Schumacher is in the studio, and we're talking about her new novel, The English Experience, because I realized I forgot to say the title oh. the last time I mentioned this, and your publicist would be... Very unhappy with me. So, um, okay. So back to back to some of the funny stuff about the novel, and then I want to ask you to read uh, some of the excerpts. So we've got ten students who remain because one of them is off flaunting around the uh, the the globe, <laughs> European continent. Yes, um, and these students, for most of them, it's the first time they've been away from their parents or their cats. Yes. And um, they're relying on Jason Fitker for a lot more than he expected. He's, for, he's, yeah, not used, he's not used to being relied to upon. Yeah, people, tell us more about well, that. Well, people do not rely on him for all the obvious reasons. He is um, irascible, you know, unpleasant, very crusty, uh, as his ex-wife points out. No nurturer here. Um, but he, he's a sort of mother figure. And when he first gets to England... With his undergrads, he manages to, to trip down a flight of stairs and sprain his ankle, and he does have to send them off on their first adventure alone. They all go off to the British Museum. He gives them a writing prompt every day. He tells them they're going to be writing every day, which they find appalling. They decide this is way too much work to be writing something every day. But um, that is something I I have loved to do when I have traveled with undergrads. And how have they taken those assignments? Does the writing every day seem burdensome? I don't want everybody to have to bring a computer. It's heavy to travel with a computer, even if it's a little bitty laptop. And I give them each a notebook and say, you'll be Mm. filling this while we're here. I want you to sketch things. I want you to write by hand. Some of them, you know, writing by hand, how can that be done? But um, yeah, it's, it's an endeavor that he loves despite himself and that I have loved despite small calamities and things that uh, and, and, you know, I encountered along the way. I think it's a wonderful practice for this age, traveling somewhere that you've never been. Yeah. You know, I take groups of women and, and, uh, and their spouses and mm-hmm. partners on trips yeah. that love to read. And the, the revitalization that happens like within hours of touching down somewhere that you've never been and what you're looking for is a way to express that. I mean, that's the power of the Mm -hmm. camaraderie of, you know, being together, but you're also looking for some, 
indelible way to express that, right? That you can go back to. Yeah, there are all these experiences allied with travel abroad. There's the untethering from your usual circumstances, right? That in itself is a change and an eye-opening sort of thing. And then the encountering of things that are unfamiliar and then trying to express those things, whether you draw them, whether you write them down, whether you send them in an email to a friend, mm-hmm. all those things. How about sharing them in the moment? Too? Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, forming that group yeah. with the other people you're traveling with. I mean, these students are doing that. They gradually do that. Yeah. Right? There's some cross currents and difficulties between mm-hmm. the students, but you can see them uh, forming into a group that does care what yeah. the rest of them are experiencing. They coalesce even though they too are unlikely comrades. Yeah. Um, they one of the <clears throat> excuse me, one of the students early on says to Fitger, I we are not we are not a group. Really. Yeah. We are not right. coalescing. But they do, despite themselves. Right. And without even being aware of it, I yeah. guess, in some ways. Yeah. Right. And again, despite himself, Fitger does become <laughs> An unlikely nurturer. He does <laughs> so, have to become a nurturer. So uh, this is something I wondered. Is he in some ways an impediment to their coalescence or is it because he's so unnurturing at the beginning <laughs> that they really have to turn to each other to get what they need? What do you think? I think it takes them a while because of his character. He is not someone who's going to encourage them to coalesce, but eventually they realize that's what they're going to have to do. Right, um, to survive because of, this. Because of who he is. Yeah, to survive <laughs> it, to deal with him, to withstand right. him. They're right. going to coalesce. <laughs> uh, okay, so I wanted you to read some of the excerpts of yes. these are the – will you describe what they are, if you will? <laughs> well, let's see. The, the first chapter consists of – Fitker being asked and being told by the provost that he is going to be taking this group of students abroad. The second chapter, I thought it would be fun to have portions of the book written in the voices of the students, written, in fact, as their documents. So chapter two, the second portion of the book, consists entirely of the students, quote, statements of interest, why they want to go on the trip. Do you is this done? I don't think I had to do that. There are a bunch abroad. of documents that students need to submit. You know, there's an application form, yeah. of course, and various sub documents that go along with it. Some of which I see as a as a leader, and others which I I don't see. Um, do you see statements of? But I interest? do see yes. Oh, why wow. Why do I want to go on this trip? I yeah. see those. Yeah, oh, and boy. they're interesting. Yeah, I'll bet you made them <laughs> quite interesting. Okay, so. Um, Cue up the first excerpt, if you will. Okay. The first excerpt is uh, written by Felicity Babinek. She is the student who is homesick when she gets to England because she has never been away from her cat. (laughs) Dear Experience Abroad Office, my name is Felicity Babinek, and I am applying for the Experience England program with Professor Lordimer in January. I took Survey of American History with Professor Lordimer last year and enjoyed it a lot. He did a magic show to show a point about the War of 1812 that was not like anything in a classroom I ever saw. (laughs) I'll bet. (laughs) At Payne, I am majoring in elementary education, kindergarten or first grade. My interest in England is that it is a place where a lot of poets are from. I love to write poems, and sometimes I read them too when I have the time. 
Although I have never been out of the U.S., I am eager to set my foot in foreign lands. Seeing and understanding other cultures will be important to my teaching career. My personality is shy, but I am easy to get along with, I think. That is one of my strengths. One of my weaknesses is, I am not as brave as I should be. I will be nervous when the plane takes off, but that is something I am working on. Thanks. One final word about me is that I have never been away from Mrs. Gray. She is my cat. (laughs) Felicity likes poetry. That didn't sound as ridiculous in your reading as it did when I read it (laughs) somehow. She sounds... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I read I read the audiobook. I did the audiobook version of oh, this you did? Oh. recently. And um, I tend to be uh, on the subtle side when I read aloud, but yeah. the person who was directing me from a booth uh, in New York kept saying, no, I need more of this voice. I want you to tweak that voice, bend it. You know, he wanted me to be an actor, yeah. which I am not. So <laughs> I did ham it up more for the audiobook. <laughs> okay. So it could be ham, but hammed. it hasn't been here. Yes. All right. Good to know. The next one is from <clears throat> Elwin Yang. He is a lover of horror fiction, and he indulges in that even though he's not supposed to be indulging in it during some of his assignments later on in the novel. I love this kid. (laughs) Ivy-encrusted headstones, wraiths, dungeons and crooked alleyways echoing with the tormented screams of the damned. London overflows with haunted places, most of which I intend to see during our three-week tour. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Elwin P. Yang, and I am a sophomore with a solid academic reputation and a personal interest in horror, H.P. Lovecraft, and the occult. In preparation for our trip, I have read several books about Jack the Ripper. If the Jack the Ripper tour is not on our schedule, I will (laughs) add it for myself. I have not seen a copy of our itinerary, but I assume it will include the Tower of London. May I suggest we also visit the old Operating Theatre Museum, Soundproof, because they didn't use anesthesia, Epping Forest, which is well known as a hideaway used by murderers, and the historic cemeteries, especially the pet burying ground in Hyde Park. I will bring information about each of these to share. To answer the question about my ability to cooperate and get along with a group, I will say that I am not particularly well-liked. I am a business major, 3.6 GPA, for the obvious reasons there are no jobs out there for people who just want to read. I do not have any allergies and don't take medications except for a topical steroid in case my eczema, it is not contagious, gets out of hand. (laughs) So that line about um, there are no jobs out there for people who just want to read, that's what a lot of undergrads are being told, I think, by, you know, I don't know, by their families, by some somebody, something. And so they are shy of being liberal arts majors. Yeah. Um, I, I spotted a, a troubling assertion mm. from you in a previous interview about this where you said reading is becoming a lost art. Yeah. Did you mean that? Did you mean that in the way that we know that many Americans read only a couple books a year, if, if mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Or did you mean that that students really don't understand how to read critically and maybe maybe they never will? You hope that they gain that skill in college, but I think a lot of people graduate without knowing how to do that too. What, what's your what, – how did you mean that? I think I was 
thinking of the former when I made that remark. Well, you think of um, all the arguments that are happening now Mm -hmm. about literacy and books in K through 12 education. Right. People fight, fight, fight about the books their children are going to read in school. And once people graduate from college, few people read anything anymore. (laughs) Maybe they read the daily newspaper. But most people, as you said, aren't reading books. They're consuming media. They're consuming stories via Netflix and TV. Mm-hmm. But they're not reading as much as they were. I do think it's a, a lost art. I'm planning this fall when I teach an undergrad class to um, have most of the class be technology-free and to have um, 30 minutes of silent reading. It's a three-hour class. Wow. Yeah. Put the phone down. Read the book. We're going to read the book we're not going to, you know, because... Why are you doing that? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's hard now to, um, when I was getting ready to come for this interview, I was on email and my phone was face up next to me and trying to write an email of more than two paragraphs when things are flashing on the phone, most of them spam, by the way. Yeah. I, I think my attention span is suffering. It's being assaulted, really. Yeah. And I I would love to see so many students read books on their phone now. Um, mm-hmm. And do you do that? No, no. I do that. I've go- I've gone to that. Yeah. as one of my ways to read, just because it means I have a book anywhere, yeah. wherever I am. I have a Kindle if I travel, so yeah. I do use that when I travel. But I definitely prefer a book. The real, the real thing. And I just think you don't have the same number of distractions. You know, you can't be interrupted in the same ways. So I think just silently reading with a group of people who are also silently reading is a lovely thing. I know there's a course being taught somewhere. I've read about it, and I don't remember what it was. I think it was a philosophy class. And it met once a week for, I think, six hours or so. And the students were to bring their dinner with them. This was somewhere on the East Coast. And they read, I think, silently for the first hour. Then they would discuss, and they would read silently. And oh, I thought, that's great. what a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> love that. So, um, yeah, it's a way of paying attention to something that deserves to be paid attention to. It's going to be interesting for you to observe. Is this the first time you've done a class where everybody's going to read together yeah. in silence? Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting for you to observe how uncomfortable that feels at the beginning. Yeah, I think it will be uncomfortable at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, what I, as much as I read, and I'm sure you read, I do find myself having to put it all away and retreat to somewhere else Mm -hmm. in the house now to Mm -hmm. read the way, in a way that I probably didn't have to, I don't know, even 10 years ago. Yeah. It has to be much more intentional. Yes. Now, although that said, I feel like all these different um, devices to read on are such a gift. Getting the car oil changed. I've got 30 minutes to I sit know. there and read my novel. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. On the other hand, I'll bet when, um, you know, now when you wait in an airport or you're on a plane or a train even, everybody's got their phone out. Yeah. People don't speak to each other. They're That's right. They're all on their individual devices. But they're not devices. reading novels. Well, maybe <laughs> some the of them part are. There. Yeah. Yeah. I remember traveling somewhere recently with my daughter, and she and I were both looking at our phones, of course, as everyone else was. And 
I said to her, yeah, in the old days, we'd be talking to those people sitting over there. Yeah, that's Saying, right. where are you going? Yeah. Oh, really? You're going to go visit so-and-so? That sounds nice. What are you going to do? She said, really? You would be just talking to strangers? <laughs> I said, yeah, that happened back in the day. It was a thing. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So tell me what you're assigning these days in some of your, uh, your teaching. Oh, I assign um, lots of contemporary fiction at the U. We're bringing in a whole bunch of terrific writers this fall, and I assign their work because I want students to, you know, read. We're bringing in Ada Limon. We're bringing in oh. um, uh, Nana Kwame Ajebrenya, who mm-hmm. wrote uh, Friday Black and has a new novel out. Um, I don't even remember all the others. I always assign Louise Erdrich because um, she's because. our she's Louise Erdrich. I mean, <laughs> right? Enough my God, said. I, yeah, enough said. Um, so contemporary fiction is what I assign. I'm, that's mainly what I teach. Do you find that um, the students? I mean, are you along with exposing students to this this literature? Do you find that? Um, students are coming with knowledge of many of these authors, or is this a new exposure? And do they know what to do with it? I mean, that's what college was for me, yeah. too. Yeah. But I'm wondering, with so many more ways to be exposed mm-hmm. to literature, if they come more prepared for that. Mm-hmm. A lot of them come um, having spent years and years um Reading YA fiction, young adult literature, yeah. fantasy is very big. But we didn't very have, big, which right? didn't really exist. Yeah, when right. you and I were that age, um, and there's a, a certain category now called emerging adult. So there's YA literature. There's mm. middle grade, then YA, then EA for mm. emerging adult, okay. which is basically young adult literature with more sex in it. Um, and what then? What age are you when you're reading emerging? <laughs> I guess you can be up to forty. Okay, <laughs> you're still an emerging adult, <laughs> right? Uh, so that's what a lot of students are enthusiastic about when they uh-huh. come. But uh, students always surprise you. You know, some of them come in saying, "I'm a huge Erdrich fan. Read everything of hers. Great. Wow. Great. 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 Yeah. Do you think YA? I I wonder if I if my reading skills were diminished or not developed, let me say that, when I got to college because I didn't have this experience of YA. Hmm. You know, I read far beyond my age, Mm -hmm. which is not a... Which can be a positive, but is not always a positive, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Because there's really no. You feel you missed a developmental stage? (laughs) I guess. I mean, I'm just saying, um, you know, in some ways the value of that YA... Mm literature is teaching you how to read for content, you know, in some ways, in the best kind of way. I didn't have that. Yeah. I think it speaks to people's emotions in the current moment, too. Right. Didn't have that either. Yeah. 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 Do you feel like you missed out on that? I feel like I went from uh, Nancy Drew to Jane Austen. All right. That's exactly what I was thinking. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. A girl heroine. In trouble, yeah, <laughs> and uh, seemed like, uh, yeah, there was just one little leap from one to the other. I'm still a Jane Austen fan. I love her wit and her dialogue. People ask me sometimes, you know, what other quote humor writers or satirists do you like? And I say Jane Austen. You know, yeah. people don't label her a satirist or a humorist, but but she she, she is she is among many many other things about manners, right? And her dialogue is just. 
crisp. There's nothing else like it. I want to ask you real quick before we end about Nancy Drew, because I recently wrote about Nancy Drew. I created this character and then challenged people to, could they identify her? Mm. The emotion and fondness for Nancy Drew, and I feel this too, uh, just came pouring out. What what did Nancy Drew do for you? Because it sounds like you read Nancy Drew. Well, I think, you know, you and I maybe grew up at a time when many of the books we were assigned at school and many of the books we read that we loved and were terrific books were about boys. Yeah, that's right. And Nancy Drew was very much <laughs> about a girl. Yeah. Uh, there was Ned Nickerson along for the ride, but it was Nancy. She was the <laughs> she was the hero. Right. Uh, same thing with Little Women. Mm. You know, um, they were stuck in their time, of course. Joe was the rebel wanting to have a job rather than stay home and languish like Beth or Meg. But it was girls at the center of a narrative, uh, the ones driving driving a plot. And that was huge, I think, mm-hmm. to be a young person reading, you know, books that were good books that adults even might read. Such that a had great girls point. at the center. She lived a even though she had her father there and the friends, mm-hmm. she lived a very independent life. Totally. We didn't see that. Driving that much, her red did roadster. We? Yep. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, there are it's it's a great thing. There are many more books that are about girls, young women today, today. that that That's didn't right. exist back then. Yeah. Are your are your kids readers? They are. My older one loves sci-fi. Uh, she's a big sci-fi reader. The younger one is purely audiobooks. Great audio reader. She lives out in the country with many chickens and dogs and <laughs> walks around listening <laughs> listening to novels on, oh my gosh. on audio. Perfect. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. Do you listen to audio? I don't. I'm, I wondered I'm, since uh, you had recorded your own. I why? Think, well, I think if I had a long commute I certainly would be. You know, there were other times in my life when I had a, a commute, but mm-hmm. I live about five minutes from where I work. And um, I guess when I walk the dog, I just like to say hello to people and not be plugged in. Um, so it's nothing about being read to. No, I like to be read you to. Do? Okay. Yeah, I used to try to convince my spouse to read to me, but he doesn't like to read aloud. <laughs> so that uh, <laughs> there is a flaw in Larry Jacobs. There I can't is. There is. Wow. I do. I'm a. I'm a big listener to the Moth. You know, yeah. Story Corps things like that. I do love to listen to stories, but I don't. I don't generally spend the time in the car or somewhere where I would listen to a nine hour novel. Right. Julie Schumacher's new novel is called The English Experience, and she tracked the audiobook version of it, too. Yes. Which is fun, given what we were just saying. Julie, thank you. Wonderful to have you. Thanks so much, Carrie. 